The history of compassion goes as far back as we do, and even a bit further. Today, we continue the Compassion series, a set of episodes designed to bring you some positive stories to offset the craziness going on around all of us right now by telling true histories of good people doing good things during times of crisis. If you're listening to this in the future after the COVID panic, well, I bet you miss your sweatpants. Those of us still stuck in the past are getting along okay, but maybe letting ourselves go a bit. I wore socks with sandals to the grocery store yesterday, and I'm not even a little bit ashamed. Before I jump into it, I want to say thank you to everyone who has listened, subscribed, and reviewed the podcast. It has seriously made such a difference. A podcast's visibility is directly tied to how many subscribers it has. So if you're one of those amazing humans that has reviewed or hit that subscribe button, you are the human equivalent to the stuffing inside an Oreo. You are ice cream in a world of frozen yogurt. You are the bacon on my grilled cheese. So thank you. Okay, now for some history. In this episode, I want to showcase just how ingrained it is in our DNA for us to cooperate and show compassion, even when the world around us was a mysterious one, full of danger, lots of large creatures with sharp teeth, and vast landscapes full of the unknown. We're going to start this episode in a prehistoric world, which is my favorite, for some truly ancient examples of compassion. Then we're going to do something a little bit different and talk about the psychology of compassion and how it helps keep us healthy. We're also going to talk a bit about happiness, too, a couple different types of it, as well as the consequences of stress and how all that ties in with our minds, bodies, and the history of humankind. I'm telling you up front that this episode has a heaping dose of psychology and biology thrown in with the history we'll be talking about, but everything I have included not only complements the history we'll be discussing, but it helps to explain it more thoroughly. This episode is still about history. We're just going a little off-road near the end this time. Just think of it as a detour on the road less traveled by. But first, let's step back 430,000 years to take a look at the prehistory of compassion. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Compassion is part of what makes us who we are. So is love, and not just in the Homo sapiens sapiens sense. They were a part of those who came before us, too. There is a paleoanthropological site in Spain called Cima de los Huesos, or the Pit of Bones. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Archaeologists have been finding and studying prehistoric fossils there since the 1970s. This cave, snuggled inside the Atapuerca Mountains, held the bones of at least 28 individual hominids for 430,000 years. 
These bones rested among the remains of Pleistocene animals like cave bears, lions, gray wolves, red foxes, and lynx. Though the stratigraphy of the bone deposits suggests the human bones in this cave were there first. 430,000 years is a span of time that's so vast, so ancient, it's hard to even put it into context. Our species has seen more prehistory than history. A lot more. History refers to the time period that has existed starting with the invention of written records. This began with the ancient writing system of cuneiform, which developed in ancient Mesopotamia around 3400 BCE. That's around 800 years before the Egyptian pyramids were built. Prehistory is everything before that, so 430,000 years is the equivalent of all of our recorded history playing itself out consecutively from 800 years before the Egyptian pyramids till now, about 80 times. That means our written history equates to a little over 1.2% of the last 430,000 years and we know strikingly little about the people who lived during that huge span of time. And for the Atapuerca Mountains, now designated a UNESCO heritage site, that's relatively young. The caves in these mountains hold the remains of the earliest known humans living in Europe, and according to UNESCO, those remains go back about a million years, so over twice as long as the cave I'll be discussing. That's so long ago that even the word ancient seems completely inadequate to describe these bones. With the pit of bones, we get an incredible snapshot in time of a world we know so much less than the one we live in now. How all of the cave's bones came to rest in the same place is debated. Mudslide, accidental falls from higher chambers in the cave, and extremely early intentional mortuary practices of our human ancestors have all been posited, though that last one is a bit more controversial. Exactly who these individuals were has been a central question for archaeologists at the site since its discovery. The bones share physiology with Neanderthals and could be early representatives of the Neanderthal lineage, though they may also share some DNA with the little-known Denisovans, a hominid that thrived from Siberia to Southeast Asia, maybe even as recently as 30,000 years ago. A few teeth, a pinky bone, and half a jawbone are all we have of the Denisovans as of this recording in May of 2020. But from those scant remains, we've been able to piece together an increasingly unobscured image of who they were. They interbred with Neanderthals, as well as us, and there's even a facial reconstruction out there based on anatomical estimates through the analysis of ancient genomes, which is incredible. I'll put a link to this in the show notes in case you want to check it out. The reconstruction is that of a young girl, not quite a Neanderthal, not quite a modern human. It's stirring, eerie, and it keeps me up at night wondering about the kind of world she existed in. Whether these bones in Cima de los Huesos belonged to one of those long-lost Denisovans isn't yet clear. 
One thing that is clear is these remains are part of our ancient family tree, and the fossils of one individual there, a child, known as SH-14, is why I'm talking about this site. The cranium of this individual is the earliest documented evidence we have of human neurocranial and brain deformity. The evidence is clear that this child was born with a serious brain deformity, one that would have impaired its ability to function. But this child was not abandoned, not rejected, not killed. According to an article from paleoanthropologist Jean-Jacques Hublin, founder and director of the Department of Human Evolution at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, Someone loved this child enough to care for it until it passed away around the age of five, apparently having received the same attention as other children from the group. In a world of hunting and gathering and surviving, this child was protected and cared for, despite how difficult that may have been on others in their group. When I was researching the earliest examples we have of compassion in prehistory, I stumbled upon a bit of anthropological irony, because this same site also has the earliest known evidence of human violence. The skull of another individual, Cranium 17, has two clearly visible fractures, almost identical, which means this person was probably hit twice with the same object. This person, who also dates to 430,000 years ago, was intentionally killed. According to lead researcher Dr. Nohemi Sala, this individual was killed in an act of lethal interpersonal violence. So our inability to get along and our propensity for violence is ancient, prehistoric. But so was our capacity for love and compassion, even when it could have made survival more difficult. The bones from this cave show that our ancestors were probably just as complicated as we are, we are still complicated, clearly, but we are capable of great kindness, and we are capable of taking care of one another. Fast forward to between 35 and 90,000 years ago, and we find the Neanderthal bones from Shanadar Cave in what is now Iraq. This site was discovered in the 1950s, and it's still giving up the secrets of its dead. One of the skeletons found there, known as Shanadar One, nicknamed Nandi, are believed to be between 35 and 45,000 years old. That's a little over 16 and a half times the length of our written history. Early in his life, Nandi the Neanderthal suffered some serious head trauma. We don't know how he sustained his head injury, but we can tell that the trauma was so severe that it even caused damage to his left eye, possibly even blinding him. The brain area controlling the right side of his body was also damaged, leading to a withered right arm and possible paralysis that crippled his right leg. On top of that, a metatarsal bone in his right foot shows a healed fracture, meaning he had a serious injury to his foot as well, one that probably worsened the limp he already had. It's safe to say that Nandi had a pretty difficult life. It is extremely unlikely that Nandi the Neanderthal could have survived on his own with all of these injuries. 
In a world of interpersonal violence, cave bears, lions, and some of the largest mammalian predators the world has seen, Nandi should have died young, right or shortly after sustaining his head trauma. But he didn't, because someone cared about him. All of his injuries show healing, suggesting that he was cared for, and none of the injuries he suffered ended up killing him. Nandi actually lived into old age. Well, 40 to 45 years old. But that was a good run for a Neanderthal, or anyone 35 to 45,000 years ago. Other skeletons in the cave, some dating from 60 to 90,000 years ago, have caused some controversy since their discovery, because it has been suggested that they were placed there deliberately in burial. There are 10 skeletons that have been found in Shanadar Cave. It's almost impossible to understand the ancient mortuary rites of our ancestors living tens of thousands of years ago, but four of the skeletons seem to have been laid out deliberately. One even had a prominent stone placed near its head. One of the skeletons, that of a middle-aged Neanderthal man, was in a fetal position and was found with clumps of pollen mixed in with the surrounding dirt, suggesting that someone had placed flowers at his burial. Aww. How beautiful is that? This is an ongoing debate, but it is possible that placing flowers on the graves of those we've lost is a tradition that goes back even further than we could have imagined. More analysis is needed from the ten skeletons, and research is ongoing. But we can see the care and compassion that went into the lives of these individuals both when they were alive and after they died. We don't always think about how compassion, love, and even altruism play a part in the survival of a species. Why do we feed stray cats? Let the one person with one item in their grocery store go ahead of us in our cart full of groceries. Why do we cry at movies with characters we know aren't even real? Or donate to organizations helping people we will never meet? Why does compassion exist? That's a hard question to answer, but let's find out what we know so far. Being good to one another is a necessary adaptive trait. Darwin posed that, quote, Communities which included the greatest number of the most sympathetic members would flourish best and rear the greatest number of offspring." Unquote. This suggests that compassion isn't just a nice trait to have, but that it's a contributor to the success and survival of a species. I'm going to share some psychological findings with you which I think really complement the history we've been discussing in this episode because psychology is a great tool for understanding not only who we are, but who we were. There's a great article by Dr. Emma Sapala, the Associate Director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford Medical School, and I'll put that with all my other research links in the show notes as always. Dr. Sapala explains that there is a growing body of evidence suggesting that compassion is a natural trait that has helped ensure our survival as a species. This is because it not only ensures we look out for one another, connect, and cooperate, but it leads to huge benefits that affect our physical and mental health. Let me give you some examples. According to Dr. Sapala's article, connecting with others in a meaningful way 
helps us enjoy better mental and physical health, and speeds up recovery from disease. Research by Stephanie Brown at Stony Brook University and Sarah Conrath at the University of Michigan has shown that it may even lengthen our lifespans. It certainly did for Nandi the Neanderthal. This is a history podcast, but I'm going to get just a little sciency on you for a bit, because there was a study done by Steve Cole at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill that examined the effects of cellular inflammation on happiness, as well as what the effects of compassion have on that happiness. I know that's a mouthful, but I'll explain what I mean. According to the Emory Winship Cancer Institute, inflammation is a natural response from our immune system used to keep us healthy, but it has also been linked to many different forms of cancer. And stress only makes it worse. Stress is to inflammation what water is to gremlins. Inflammation is a necessary response to potentially harmful events in our bodies, things that can cause infection or illness. When we think of inflammation, we usually think of acute inflammation, which causes visible signs of redness, swelling, and can be quite painful. It's that swelling and redness you've probably experienced if you've ever had an infected cut. We have written accounts describing acute inflammation that's thousands of years old. It was first described all the way back in the first century BCE by the Roman medical encyclopedist Aulus Cornelius Celsus. There's another crazy baby name for you. Our knowledge of the process and consequences of inflammation has come a long way since then. But besides the acute inflammation we're all familiar with, there is another type of inflammation called chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation often gets overlooked because it doesn't appear in the obvious visual ways that acute inflammation does. It can have very subtle or non-existent physical signs, and it plays a big role in the formulation of cancer and other diseases. How does this happen? Well, inflammation is supposed to be a temporary response kick-started by our immune system, but sometimes the process becomes prolonged, even for years. Normally, the inflammation needed to repair damage to your tissue fades after your body no longer needs it, but chronic inflammation lingers. In these cases, your body continues to produce chemicals that can actually damage your cells. Normally, these chemicals, called reactive oxygen species and nitric oxide species, are used by the body as a defense against infection, protecting us from things that can cause us harm. But these chemicals can become harmful byproduct molecules that actually attack our own cells, causing permanent DNA changes or mutations, and that can cause our affected cells to begin dividing in an irregular way, which is key in the development of cancer. Inflammation kicks on because your body is responding to a threat. Sometimes that threat can be an emotional stressor. There is more and more research out there linking stress to chronic inflammation, depression, cardiovascular diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, and cancer. When we're stressed out, our bodies go into what we've all heard described as a fight-or-flight response. When fight-or-flight kicks in because we feel stressed or threatened, our body directs resources away from functions that aren't crucial in life-threatening situations and prepares us to fight or flee whatever threat 
real or imaginary, we're facing. According to the Cleveland Clinic, during fight or flight, our body prioritizes putting immediate survival first. Your heart rate is increased so your body can get nutrients and oxygen out into your muscles. Your blood flow is restricted. You're flushed with hormones. Your pupils dilate so they can take in more light to help you see better. And your senses are heightened, keeping you alert. When all of this is going on, your body stops properly regulating things like digestion, reproductive and growth hormone production, tissue repair, and even bladder control. If you've ever been so scared you've peed your pants, it's because you were in fight or flight. Fight or flight is supposed to be a short-term response to stress. This is helpful when we really are threatened. When our bodies go into this mode, everything is directed to helping us survive that moment. That's a handy adaptive trait when you need to fight, run away from something, or find yourself having to deal with a sudden stressful situation. But one of the things affected when fight or flight is triggered is our immune system, which sends out an army of chemicals into our system to help us cope. When we're constantly stressed and that fight or flight response doesn't go away, our immune system continues to send out those chemicals, and that's when chronic inflammation can occur, and that can lead to disastrous health consequences. This means when you're constantly stressed out, your body can't physically function the way it's supposed to. So take a day off, meditate, play some Animal Crossing, binge your favorite show, take a walk outside and allow yourself not to worry about anything for just a few minutes a day. Let yourself come down from that fight or flight, clenched up, stressed out, brain screamingly scary place. Because stress can really do some damage. So what does this have to do with compassion? Well, getting back to that study done by Cole and Fredrickson on inflammation and happiness, they found something interesting. They studied the levels of cellular inflammation in people who describe themselves as very happy. While we might expect inflammation to be lower in happier people, Cole and Fredrickson discovered this actually depended on what kind of happiness the subject was experiencing. People who experienced what's known as hedonistic happiness actually had high levels of inflammation. Hedonistic happiness focuses on feeling good by seeking out experiences and positive sensations and gratifications for the physical senses. It's chasing happiness through those experiences and the momentary highs they bring. Being constantly entertained, seeking out adrenaline highs, and focusing on activities that produce those feelings. They found that this kind of pleasure-seeking doesn't do much to curtail levels of inflammation in the body. But people who experience what's called eudaimonic happiness had low inflammation levels. This type of happiness is one that's focused less on satisfying oneself through physical pleasures and adrenaline highs and more on having found a sense of meaning. People in this happiness category pursued things that gave them a sense of purpose, which made happiness the byproduct of their lives and not the goal. Compassion, altruism, kindness, a sense of purpose and meaning is what leads to lower inflammation levels, which in turn leads to better physical and mental health. So if you chase happiness for happiness sake, you probably won't find it. It has to be a byproduct of a life cultivated with purpose and compassion. 
Not only does compassion have health benefits, but it's also a trait that makes us more attractive to potential mates. A study examining the most highly valued traits in potential romantic partners suggests that everyone, regardless of gender, agrees that kindness is one of the top most desirable characteristics. Not only does compassion keep us healthy, it also feels good to do good. A brain imaging study conducted by the National Institute of Health showed that the pleasure centers of our brains become just as active when we see someone giving money to charity as it does when we receive money ourselves. And in an experiment conducted by Elizabeth Dunn at the University of British Columbia, study participants were given a sum of money. Half the participants were instructed to spend money on themselves. The other half were told to spend money on others. At the end of the study, which was published in the academic journal Science, participants who had spent money on others felt significantly happier than those who had spent the money on themselves. My point is, we're wired to take care of one another. When we don't, we don't feel good. Our health, both mental and physical, suffers. And when we chase happiness for happiness' sake, the end result falls a bit flat. Our brains need a sense of purpose and a break from stress. So be like Elsa and let all that crap go. We're not fighting for survival on a Pleistocene landscape anymore. There's no saber-toothed cat in your closet. We just need to remind our brains about that sometimes. So breathe. We've been taking care of each other for a long time now. I know I'm a bit of a sap. Obviously, I wouldn't be researching the hominid fossil records for evidence of prehistoric compassion if I weren't. But despite the hardships and violence and the fear of the unknown we've been grappling with for spans of time so vast, they're hard to even conceive. We can see that compassion, love, and happiness are more than just hashtags and New Year's resolutions to reach for. They're part of what makes us all so wonderfully human. Thank you for listening today. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm genuinely grateful that you chose to listen to the History Cache today. Next time, we're going to wrap up the Compassion series. It's been fascinating learning about some of the people throughout time that have shown us just what we humans are capable of in times of crisis. But I'm also excited to share some new stuff with you, and there's another in-depth series in the works, which should be ready to debut sometime in the next few weeks. I don't want to give too much away, but if you like a good origin story mixed with hauntingly old and soulful music, a protagonist that's also kind of an antagonist, 12-string guitars, and the occasional stabbing, you're probably going to be into it. If you want to get a hold of me about this show or any other, or even if you just want to say hi, you can reach me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the show for as little as a dollar a month and join the ranks of some awesome patrons that just happen to be the world's most amazing hominids, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. I'll be back in two weeks with more history better than fiction, the last episode of the Compassion series. And until then, until we meet again, my dear wandering stars of podcast land, go make some history.